Welcome to Rule of Law Talk, a podcast series of the World Justice Project designed to share the latest learning about the rule of law, what it is, how it works, and how we can strengthen it. I'm Ted Pacone, Chief Engagement Officer of the World Justice Project and the host of today's Rule of Law Talk. The topic for today's Rule of Law talk is emergency laws and human rights. Around the world, government leaders are turning to emergency decrees and proclamations to manage various types of crisis and upheaval in their societies. Some of these emergency measures are legitimate and temporary responses to true exigent circumstances that threaten the basic functioning of government. Others are more complex situations which, while appearing dangerous at first, are often manipulated by executives to undermine and attack political opponents, including judges, lawyers, and journalists. Here in the United States, presidents from both parties have declared national emergencies, mainly to impose sanctions against foreign actors considered dangerous to U.S. national security. President Bush declared a national emergency in response to the terrorist attacks of 9-11, which is still in effect after 18 years. In Hong Kong, popular unrest, which has turned violent at times, has prompted threats of emergency rule by government officials. Given the many effects of such extraordinary government powers on respect for human rights, international law has tried to strike a balance between recognizing a state's sovereign right to protect its citizens on one hand and placing restrictions on the scope and timing of the state's power to curtail liberties on the other. In practice, however, some governments are either not respecting these regulations or are evading them by mainstreaming emergency-type measures into ordinary law, particularly in the counterterrorism field. To help us understand the complexities of these issues, we've invited Fanula Niolain, Regents Professor and Robina Chair in Law, Public Policy and Society at the University of Minnesota Law School. Professor Niolain also serves as the UN Special Rapporteur for Protection and Promotion of Human Rights while Countering, while countering Terrorism. This mandate includes monitoring how states are upholding international norms in this field. Professor, welcome to today's segment of the World Justice Project's Rule of Law Talk. Ned, delighted to be with you. You have a remarkable record of research and writing and experience in this field, including many books covering such topics as Law in Times of Crisis, Exceptional Courts and Military Commissions, the Oxford Handbook on Gender and Conflict. So it's really an honor for us to have you join us and help us think through this complex issue. Let me Very start, glad to. Yes. Let me start by um, talking specifically about the effect of national emergencies on human rights and, and rule of law. In, in 2018, you reported to the UN General Assembly and the Human Rights Council in Geneva that these emergency proclamations deserve greater scrutiny and regulation by both domestic and international bodies. What what prompted you to take up this concern now, and, and why should we care from a rule of law perspective? 
So I think there are two parts to that. One is really to reflect on why emergency law is so pertinent to counterterrorism and sort of why now. So historically, as your introduction outlined, um, there there is a provision in international law for states to limit or suspend the exercise of certain rights or to take certain measures, uh, exceptional measures, we might call them, when faced with genuine and compelling threats to the state. And those have long been recognized in international treaties. And relatively speaking, up until 9-11, we've had a fairly consistent um, manner of application of those norms by states. Um, a couple of things to say about that. Generally, when a state was experiencing an emergency, it would tend to notify the treaty bodies and the UN Secretary General that it was doing so. It would generally tell other states what measure it was taking. And overall, the states were subject to scrutiny on their use of emergency powers by the treaty bodies that they'd signed up uh, to. So they would have some form of regular uh, or at least intermittent scrutiny on the use of these powers. But we're seeing a changing pattern post 9-11. And that shifting pattern is that in general, states are not notifying or derogating is the formal term we use in international law, uh, their obligation. They're not taking a formal sort of process to state that they're experiencing an, em an emergency. And we know that because the number of notifications going to these treaties are much fewer. Now, on the one hand, that would suggest that there's no emergencies around the globe, that things are good and we don't have to worry about the use of certain kinds of powers or limits on rights by states. But actually, we also know empirically that that's not true. States are actually, in fact, using the language of crisis and exception to justify a whole host of measures, including but not limited to counterterrorism measures at the domestic level. So it was that sort of factual piece that the absence of notification, proclamation and derogation that spurned my attention to what I see as a new set of practices by states, whereby they're using exceptional law, but not calling it such. And as a result, they're not notifying or being overseen in the same ways that typically we would have assumed they would be overseen uh, in prior times. And so that prompted both my attention to the phenomenon and the need to bring attention to it by writing about it and presenting uh, my findings to the uh, Human Rights Council. Well, I, that's very helpful to set the context. Can you tell us a little bit more about what international law actually says on the matter? What can states legally do to protect their societies in times of, of national crisis? And, and which rights can never be infringed regardless of the type of emergency? And if, if you had a state facing this situation, uh, what are the key principles of rule of law that they should follow? Sure. So a state is facing, so we call these provisions that allow states to limit or suspend rights or and in that context to take exceptional measures. We call them uh, derogation provisions. So they're a meaning a state derogates or limits its obligations because it's facing a threat. So the first thing we have to have is a genuine 
threat, right? So, uh, of course, states could say that there are that that they are facing all kinds of threats, but the jurisprudence of various international courts and, in fact, national courts where states have emergency powers under domestic law consistently stress that there has to be a genuine threat and usually that it's threatening the whole of the nation and that it compromises or threatens the nation in a way where it cannot perform its regular functions. And that's important because sometimes states will experience threat and challenge, but the ordinary law of the state may be sufficient and adequate for the state to manage, notwithstanding that there's something exceptional happening, whether it's a financial uh, uh, stressor or it's an economic stressor or it's a health stressor, like a health emergency, or it's a political emergency of some kind. So the first sort of, if we want requirements, a, a objective requirement is that there's a an exceptional threat that is that is really genuinely exceptional and can be demonstrated as such. And the second um, uh, step, I suppose, is that there are some rights that we accept in general can never be derogated from or limited, no matter what kind of exceptional threat the state is facing. And so we call these non-derogable rights in international human rights law, but these are rights that correspond in most national constitutional systems to fundamental rights that we generally have a global understanding as being unacceptable to impinge upon. So an example might be torture. We, most states, accept that you can never engage in torture. It doesn't matter whether you're facing a terrorist threat, a health emergency, an economic emergency. Torture is an absolute right that could never, you could never compel compellingly justify the use of torture. Another example might be slavery. We think of slavery as a as a complete and and absolute prohibition. We would say there are no circumstances ever in which a state could justify reintroducing slavery because it claims it's experiencing an emergency. So those are rights that can never be derogated from, no matter what kind of exigency or extremity the state is facing. But we do have other rights. We call them derogable rights or limitable rights, where states, in fact, can limit the exercise. So a good example might be freedom of movement or freedom of expression. So let's take freedom of movement as an example. We would all, I think, accept that when a state is facing, for example, a crisis like Ebola or or flu, uh, avian bird flu, that it might legitimately want to limit the movement of persons from one part of a territory to another in order to prevent disease or illness spreading amongst a population. We could think of, for example, reasonable political circumstances where we would say you can limit the rights of movement of, a, of, a, of, a, of people because there's a compelling political threat. It could be war. It could be an armed conflict of some kind. So those are things that we allow states to limit. Um, and so I, I hope that that sort of sets out what, what are what's the rationale that justifies an emergency, but what we can, what states can and cannot do in a state of emergency. That's very helpful. I have two follow-up questions. One is on, you said it has to be a whole-of-nation type of threat. Uh, Now, if there is a crisis in a particular location geographically uh, of a country, but it doesn't confront the entire nation, would that not qualify? 
The principles there are the kind of when you talked about what are the generic principles that define a state's engagement, they would be principles like proportionality or necessity or non-discrimination. Let's take proportionality as an example. If we have a crisis, let's say we do right now with the hurricane bearing down on the United States, if we say we have a crisis in a place like North Carolina, we might say that there are particular local measures that would need to be taken in the Carolinas, but I think we would find it hard to justify a state of emergency across the entire geographic United States simply because there happens to be a hurricane happening in one part of a large territory. So here, I suppose, we're we're recognizing that there might be some extreme events. 9-11 is a good example of that, where the attack happened in very specific locales in the United States, but really clearly threatened the integrity and territorial integrity of the United States, as well as its, um, its political security. And we would distinguish that from other kinds of crises where actually the threat is real and it's local, but it doesn't justify using a test of proportionality or necessity the imposition of extreme or exceptional measures across the entire territory. Right. That that's a very uh those are very good concrete examples that we're faced with uh right now. So I appreciate that. in in your report to the UN you call attention to trends in which these emergency decrees over time become normalized as a matter of ordinary law, and that these ordinary laws carry with them a host of human rights problems and vulnerabilities. Uh, One case that comes to mind is Turkey. Uh, After the attempted coup against President Erdogan in 2016, the government declared a national emergency and imposed really harsh treatment of anyone suspected of sympathizing with the rebellion. And over time, by 2018, many of these decrees had been converted into constitutional or or regular law. And just as you pointed out in the beginning, it avoids the need to have an ongoing scrutiny or notification uh, to international or national bodies. Um, And this, of course, is relevant to the counterterrorism context. And you're seeing uh, these laws being used or counterterrorism as a pretext for attacking lawyers and judges. Uh, What are the legal tools that um, you think states should use to deal with this situation. And and if you can clarify, you know, it seems there's two ways it's going. Emergency rules become normalized. um, So you better just avoid that. But then there are other situations where ordinary law already should handle the matter. Can you help us distinguish those two situations? Sure. So one of the things my report really tried to demonstrate um, and and show to states and in, in, uh, and I, I say the reason why it's important to show states is that my my view as special rapporteur is that the abuse of emergency law is in itself a challenge in terms of the efficiency of counterterrorism. Meaning that when we abuse the rule of law, when we limit human rights, we know empirically that one of the driving factors of extremism and the cycles of violence in many settings is in fact rule of law violations and corrupt or poor governance. That's We have a 
host of really good data points across multiple countries that tell us to that that to be the case. So this isn't really just an abstract matter of does it matter that states are using emergency laws and how are they using them, but the practical effect of that actually is counterproductive to preventing and countering extremism and terrorism. So in the context of ordinary law, I suppose I make the observation that states have got really smart. That is to say, historically, states would produce pieces of law, usually legislation through um, parliament or executive uh, uh, passing uh, decrees, which would have the title emergency in it. So you would know that there was an emergency uh, provisions act in the United Kingdom. You would know that there was a prevention of terrorism act in the United Kingdom. And that was a signal from lawmakers to the public and to other states that they were using exceptional law. But unfortunately, what many states learned, and I suppose this is an element of the system working, was that when they passed emergency law, they kind of raised a red flag on their own situation. They were saying, we are dealing with an emergency and therefore we may be inviting more scrutiny to our legal and political processes than we want. And so again, states have become quite clever. What we see is increasingly the passage of legislation that omits the title emergency or terrorism in the title of the law, but in fact, the content of the law on, on objective and substantive scrutiny reveals that we are in fact dealing with exceptional measures, uh, additional power to the executive, restraints on rights, uh, curbing of certain rule of law protections that tell us really clearly, objectively, that these are emergency powers. So how do we manage that? Well, one is to call attention to the fact, I think, as my report does, is that other states, civil rights um, activists, human rights defenders, and the international bodies that scrutinize state behavior, that they need to be much more attentive to what states are doing, not assume that because a body of legislation doesn't have the title emergency law, that it may not in fact be an exceptional law. And then once you do that first tier analysis where you're much clearer about the scope of the law that falls into that category, then in a way to use a, a US analogy, we would want to have heightened scrutiny or more significant scrutiny of those kinds of measures. So um this is a very uh current issue in various parts of the world. I, I want to turn our attention now to another crisis unfolding in Asia in the case of Hong Kong. You know, here we have admittedly an unusual situation of one country, the People's Republic of China, with two systems, one for mainland China and its one-party rule, and a more open and liberal one for what's called the Special Autonomous Region of Hong Kong. Uh, as the World Justice Project's Rule of Law Index shows, Hong Kong scores quite high on rule of law compared to 125 other jurisdictions around the world, ranking number 16. While China, where the Communist Party exercises control over most state functions, including the judiciary, uh, falls in at 82. And it's exactly this gap on rule of law that has been critical to the mobilizing of 
hundreds of thousands of citizens who are trying to exercise their rights to assembly and expression and oppose, for example, this extradition law uh, that would allow the Hong Kong government to extradite uh, citizens to, to mainland China, where the rule of law is quite different. Um, you've seen government officials in Hong Kong and Beijing threatening to apply emergency laws to get the situation under control. If you were in a meeting with uh, the chief executive, Carrie Lam, as we were just a couple months ago, what, what would you advise them if you, if you had the chance? I mean, I think there's a number of levels, as you know. I think there are a number of things going on in Hong Kong that are very challenging and that my office as Special Rapporteur is profoundly concerned about. Um, one is that I think in addition to the possible, to the sort of use of exceptional powers, and there is a particular piece of historic legislation in Hong Kong, which is actually a colonial power, um, which is, has been maintained, which allows the chief executive to effectively override most of the regular systems of, of, of checks and balances in the context of an emergency that, that may be applicable here, but, but of course concentrates power in the executive in a way that undermines the very uh, precariousness of the rule of law in these situations, and that is concerning. And the second point here is I think is important to contextualize that the government of China has in many of its public pronouncements around what's happening in Hong Kong made generic allusions to the problem of terrorism or extremism. And one of the parallel challenges in addition to emergency laws that my office has been monitoring is the misuse of counterterrorism or emergency powers against legitimate civil society acts and activists and the use of such powers in the context of individuals who are exercising their legitimately held rights under constitutions and or international human rights law, expression, uh, movement, assembly, rights that we think of as sort of as fundamental rights in many situations. And so we have two things going on at the same time. One is the resort to exceptionality, but the second is the use of those exceptional powers against um, practices that are legitimately and fully protected under international law by using the cloak of extremism or terrorism or invoking that language as a rationale or a justification for exceptional approaches by governments. And my view has been very clearly that that's not acceptable within a state's human right, international human rights obligations. So I suppose if I were sitting down with the chief executive, I would say it's really, your, 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 the starting point is that you engage breaches of international law to which you are bound. But I also think there's a very pragmatic argument to be made to politicians and governments, which is is an argument that my office and I myself regularly make, which is this is neither efficient nor effective in the long. It's not simply a moral case that one is making for the value of human rights and the value of rule of law, but it's actually an, a 
case for efficiency and effectiveness of the government's own demands. And I, I go back to, in the context of terrorism and counterterrorism, what I frequently say to government is when you violate human rights, you create the conditions conducive to further violence and further extremism. So if our goal here and the goal of the mandate too is to create conditions in which such violence doesn't occur, then human rights violations, in fact, are counter to effective counterterrorism and have to be understood by governments in that way. No, this is very, very logical argument. Um, in the heat of the moment, of course, uh, there's a strong desire for, uh, to order the police to get the situation under control. And in the process, there are often human rights violations, as we've seen in Hong Kong. But, you know, this, um, this latest round all started with this proposal of a law for uh, extradition, and it sparked these these protests that, of course, have taken on a life of their own and are really at the heart of it a question of the future of, of Hong Kong's uh, limited sovereignty from Beijing. Uh, so there's a lot in play here. But um, you can imagine that uh, so far uh, Hong Kong has not declared emergency. Um, there have been police interventions and citizens are, are pushing back against that. Um, citizens are now calling for uh, some kind of independent investigation of the violations by the police. What, what do you think should be the next step in the current moment? So I, I think my advice in this situation is that I'm not a politician. So I the broader and larger questions of the status of Hong Kong and the appropriate relationship between Hong Kong and the mainland are not matters that my mandate deals with. But I think my advice to states is always that to, to really underscore the value of compliance and the self-interest for states in complying with international law. And sometimes, as you say, in the heat of the moment, and as states struggle to manage situations of extremity or situations in which they are are uh, having to address legitimate and grievances that are being brought by uh, populations or communities within their body politic, that can be really hard because it seems very abstract to talk about the value of human rights in these contexts. But again, I go back to the sort of the core here, which is that the state's long-term interest, its international legitimacy, and the bargain that the state has with its population in the long term are served by a consistent and principled application of human rights. So it's not only a moral value for states, but it's actually an efficiency and pragmatic value for states. Because in the long run, as we know, repression, the cycle of repression and violence, that, that sort of in, in, in intimate cycle that we see in so many countries, once it's triggered, is not easily broken. And the cost to states in economic and political and social terms are extraordinarily high. And so in this sense, human rights is not a luxury, but it's actually a self-protective mechanism for states in the long run. And I, I think it's trying to change the conversation among states to see human rights values and rule of law values as their allies in contexts where, in fact, they're going to be hearing a lot of noise which suggests these things can be expediently set aside. Well, I think that's a very important and brilliant message 
to give in the current context. I, I want to um, come back to the United States where we're having our own national conversation about emergency laws and what the president can and cannot do to bypass Congress. So here we're talking not just about human rights per se, but broadly about checks and balances and the operation of a democratic, accountable, transparent system. Um, and it was Congress that passed the National Emergencies Act in 1976 precisely to assert a legislative uh, position on how do you regulate executive power um, and and with what checks and balances. And, and in practice, U.S. presidents of both parties have declared a lot of national emergencies, but they tend to deal with foreign leaders uh, responsible for gross human rights violations and corruption. I'm thinking about places like Myanmar, Venezuela, and Nicaragua most recently. Um, but in February of this year, President Trump declared a national emergency to deal with illegal migration along the border with Mexico, in part as a way to steer money toward construction of his promised border wall. Um, another uh, executive order came out in March banning U.S. companies from using certain Chinese telecommunications equipment as a risk to national security. So you have two examples that are a little... Um, different than what we've seen historically in the U.S. How do you assess these latest examples and their implications for human rights and, and for the rule of law? Yeah, so I, I, I in, in both contexts, both raise a plethora of issues. And I suppose on the first, in terms of the use of legislation um, um, in the context of um, sort of the, the challenge of migration to the United States, the mandate has made the point that when states stretch the meaning of emergency beyond any coherent or justifiable, objectively justifiable basis, it really cheapens the value of the discourse, right? When when emergency powers are used willy-nilly by the state, when you start to lose trust that the, and I mean, when you and citizens and the body politics start to lose trust in the exercise of political judgment around exceptionality, I think we really run into fundamental rule of law challenges because, again, what we're learning in many countries around the globe when we have an overuse of emergency powers is there's a degree of trust built into every political system and there's a trust that certain powers will only be used particularly in democracies when they are absolutely needed and that the first fallback is to use the ordinary law. So when you weaken that trust, when you weaken the basis um when you cheapen the sort of the the commodity of exceptionalism, then you run into risks that actually when exceptional norms are really needed and they are in fact the, the mandate and I as a scholar and academic that there are times when states need to use exceptional powers, actually you lose the kind of um the quality of trust and the quality of um value of that commodity in truly exceptional moments. The second thing I would say is that it raises, and this point was made by the mandate in the context of the use of uh, uh, legislation and um, legislative power uh, in the migrant crisis, is that actually the signal when the leading, one of the leading democracies in the world uses the discourse of emergency powers to attack a complex global problem really, in some sense, creates a precedent for the misuse of emergency powers by other less 
rule of law robust and less rule of law compliance based. So when democracies are um, thoughtful and restrained in their use of emergency powers, they send signals to non-democracy about the, the acceptable limits of the exception. And when democracies flirt with the overuse, they're sending a signal to states that have none of the restraining systems, whether they be courts or legislatures or even a robust civil society. They're effectively sending signals to those states that overuse and misuse could be will be tolerated. And I think that's a really dreadful signal to send, particularly at a time when we see uh, I would say an epidemic globally in the use of exceptional uh, powers, and, and I think that's deeply regrettable. Well, uh, we're going to confront these kinds of situations over and over again as we see uh, a number of countries, um, including democracies, electing leaders who are choosing a, a much more kind of strongman approach on a number of issues. And then you have the, the rise of digital technology and all the effects that is having on uh, citizens' rights. And I know you've begun thinking about that issue as well. Yes. So the mandate is increasingly, I suppose, reflective on um, the use of various kinds of technology, data collection, data storage, data sharing and cooperation among states, particularly when that sharing occurs in a context where many states have less robust privacy, rule of law, due process rights. So um, we might be fine with data being shared with a country that's like ours, perhaps for many citizens in many parts of the world, but certainly not comfortable in that data being shared with countries who have none of the restraints or protections in place that might be guaranteed by constitutions or constitutional conventions. I think the mandate is also increasingly concerned that counterterrorism actually is the front line of experimentation on um, the sort of invasions of privacy and the use of data. So things that start off being justified because of a certain kind of exceptional threat, uh, the use of airline passenger information or the use of passenger data when you travel on trains or boats, we might say, well, that's that, that might be justified or states might make the claim that that's justified because we have a challenge of foreign fighters moving from one country to the other and we need to protect the world against the, the harm that they might do. But when that becomes normalized so that, in fact, certain kinds of exceptional data prote- uh, collection are done regularly and routinely without reference to threat at all, then we see again the move of the exceptional to the norm. And new technologies are at the cutting edge of that conversation. And the, the sort of edge of the knife is the, the justification for those technologies in the context of security. And I think what I fear is that we'll see the security being used as a way to advance other set of limitations on rights uh, down the road. Well, as you said, a plethora of challenges. Uh, we've been talking to Professor Fanula Eloin, who is the Regents Professor uh, for Law, Public Policy, and Society at the University of Minnesota Law School, and is currently the UN Special Rapporteur for the Protection and Promotion of Human Rights While Countering Terrorism. That 
mandate is appointed as someone who is appointed by governments at the UN, uh, both the General Assembly and the Human Rights Council, uh, to be the eyes and ears of uh, member state governments on a whole host of human rights problems. And I have to say, from my own study of these uh, special rapporteurs, that you are very much uh, on your game and calling out uh, the tough questions and proposing very, I think, not only theoretical, but very pragmatic responses to these challenges. So I thank you on behalf of the World Justice Project Rule of Law Talk for joining us uh, today's podcast. Very glad to join you and appreciate the, um, the attention that's being given in a rule of law context to these issues. It, it always supports the broader, uh, I think, uh, goal of ensuring and advancing protections globally um, and uh, unequivocally for rule of law and human rights. So thank you. Thank you.